0: Hello, everyone. We're back again with another very special episode of Tomahawk Talk. It's not what we usually do. We've been gone for a couple weeks, but I gave you guys a little bit of a teaser about this episode uh, a couple weeks ago, the last time we were on. But joining Gary and I today on the show is Ryan Kelly of WCTV, formerly of WVFS and Tomahawk Talk. Ryan, we're going to talk a lot about we're going to go back in time in this, week, in this week's episode. And, and it might make you feel old because the reason we had to have you on the show is because Gary and I were still seniors in high school in 2016. And we are talking oh. about Florida State football oh. in 2016. I'd but already Ryan, graduated college. Ow. <laughs> Gosh. Ryan, how old did I just make you feel? But more importantly, how are you holding up, buddy?
1: I'm good, fellas. I hope you're doing well. Uh, obviously, things have been pretty wild. I don't have to say that over the last three months there's a lot going on in our world right now and just a chance to unplug and talk a little bit of Florida State football even as wild of a season as 2016 was is greatly greatly appreciated. Fellas hope you're doing well and and as far as uh, feeling old I turned 27 last week and it's the first time I kind of looked at that number and went, "Oh, those don't get any lower, do they?" <laughs> so yeah, uh, I've uh, th- thanks for thanks for the other uh, knock back down to earth there, Brett. I appreciate it.
0: Well, well, Ryan, happy belated birthday! But, but Gary, like I said, you and I were we not even on campus yet when the 2016 season happened. And even for people that have been on campus, it feels like it was over a decade ago that this season was played with everything that's gone on. Uh, three coaching staffs uh, since then, including the, the one that was uh, in charge then and the one that's in charge now. But Gary, even though we weren't on campus, before we really dive deep into the season, is there is there one memory from this season? Because you were a Florida State fan, correct? At least for, you know, maybe not as hardcore, but
2: yeah i i was actually at the orange bowl we'll get to that one later but i was at that orange bowl game against michigan from that season that was my one me- my biggest memory from that year and the other one probably don't want to talk about this yet but the unc game is the other one then the, oh kind of okay. the crushing loss from that unc game was
0: yeah <laughs> we'll definitely talk about both of those games um but but the idea for this episode uh kind of came about the other day you know like ryan said not a whole lot going on in the world of sports i was flipping through the showtime app and i was like hey let me go back and watch some of the the, the showtime series a season with that covered the 2016 florida state football team and i thought that it would be a, a bit of a, a nicer trip down memory lane you know it was probably the last season from a Florida state standpoint with Florida state standards that fans would consider a success. I mean, they won 10 games, including the orange bowl. They were in the New York, New York six bowl and beat a top 10 team in Michigan. Uh, but there was a lot that, that went wrong in that season. And a lot of the, a lot of the events that played out through the course of that campaign led to the struggles that Florida state would go through for the next four or three seasons. Um, but, but, but Ryan, uh, when you think of, of of the 2016 season, one or two words to describe to describe it, how would you do it?
1: Um, hmm. Up and down. Uh, I, I think it's a season that starts really, really crazily. You know, it's one of the things that in revisiting, Gary and I were talking a little off mic before this started. People forget Sean McGuire was in the mix for the starting job, and, and that was yeah. a big debate throughout this camp was that Who's going to start? Is it the highly touted guy and DeAndre Francois? Is, or is it going to be the veteran dude? You go out, you roll the dice with him one more time, hope that he doesn't make too many mistakes. It's that, and then it's a wild, wild game at Ole Miss. I know we'll touch on that in a second. A blowout at Louisville, I'm most certain that we'll talk about that. <laughs> FSU's first home loss in God knows how long when they lose to North Carolina. You mentioned that game. Uh It starts there, and then it rallies back together. Florida State plays one of the craziest Miami games there ever was played uh, against the Hurricanes down in South Florida, and it really turns their season around. They beat Florida up pretty good in a game that was in prime time. People really forget that that was a top-ten game that a lot of people had attention on. Uh, Overall, this was a year that was so wildly on the brink and Florida State recovers, beats their rivals, has a nice run through out of it, probably should have beat Clemson. I'm sure we'll also get to that later. <laughs> I don't. I just want to set the table. I don't want to eat the meal yet. But And then, of course, that Orange Bowl win against Michigan, a season that a lot of people thought was on the brink. And then at the end of the season at the bowl game, everybody's talking about, boy, Florida State might just beat Alabama next year. And uh, <laughs> we'll leave 2017 to another day. <laughs> but it went from such despair to such hope. And I do think you do have to give the staff a little bit of credit for that. I, even though, of course, the, the later years of Jimbo Fisher's tenure, the, the people are highly, highly critical of them. But this was a team that was on the edge, and they found a way to come back from the brink instead of fall overboard. Next year, not so much, but they did it in 16.
0: Yeah, and like I said, the the idea for, of this episode came from that Showtime series, and I was watching it, and – uh that was such a big storyline within the program and outside the program because it was an inside look at what was going on, and there was a lot of turmoil involved. But but one of the things I the first things I noticed when I was watching this series back was I got to hear the dulcet tones of Ryan Kelly, uh, <laughs> his voiceovers in in the series and Ryan. How did that come about? Talk to me a little bit about that.
1: Okay, so th- th- those are, of course, recordings from Wake Up Warchamp. Back when I was working with warchamp.com dot com,
0: mm-hmm. and
1: uh, Wake Up Warchamp, of course, the podcast still goes on. Aslan and Corey host it now, but back when I was working with them, we did it, and we did it as a daily show. We did it Monday through Friday. We released it as a podcast. Plus, they don't—I know they don't do this anymore—but we used to run it six to seven a.m. on ESPN Tallahassee, the sports talk station here in town, and. So we got an email one day from the season with producers and they said, Hey, we like what you're doing. You mind if we just take a couple audio snippets that they might've dealt more with Gene Williams, who of course runs warchant.com. Mm-hmm. But as far as my contact, it was just an email. I forwarded it to Gene and it was quick. Hey, yeah, do what you want. Of course. So we're thinking, you know, of course they're going to take snippets from all of the media outlets. There'll be a little bit of us. There'll be a little bit of WCTV. There'll be a little WTXL, there might even be, you know, some Cameron stuff, Tomahawk talk, everything. The Democrat FS View is probably going to have little sprinklings of all these things. And then it became very clear about ten minutes into that show. Of, oh no, we're helping narrate this. Like we, we are kind of what push it, and it kind of makes sense because, at least from the way that I used to host Wake Up, Portion, it was it was very news-driven. It was very headlines of the day with FSU. We always started with a practice report. We always started with what the big stories were from what we saw that day before. And then occasionally it would be Ira or Gene or Ryan Clark at the time, and they would more kind of give some editorial on the day. But it it was a more news-driven show. So it, it makes sense that they chose us. It also makes sense because uh, I'll be honest with you, the first episode we got, we got a ton of tweets and well I did personally and I <laughs> some subtweeting as well, I will say that, of who the heck is this kid and why is Jeff Cameron not here? And uh, you know, as as someone who interned for Jeff Cameron, loves Jeff, I completely got that sentiment. But I think part of it was a Jeff's show was on while these dudes were out at practice every day filming.
0: Right. Right.
1: So and, and Jeff's show was more about what happened the day before. And, you know, more opinion. And that's nothing. Jeff's the best in the world at what he does. I love Jeff Cameron. But ours was just kind of a headline, quick reader. Hey, today at practice, we saw such and such on the bike. What do you think about that? And so it, it kind of, I think, lent itself to maybe some cleaner edits. And also, I just think it's the time
0: of day that they were listening to the radio and they heard us. Ryan I don't think you give yourself enough credit man I think uh, you're well deserving of being included on on the series but uh from a media standpoint covering the team day to day go ahead but in I, I'll butt in I got one credit on the whole show that because they they thanked WarChant very very briefly at the end
1: credits the only beef I have with being on the show is only one time is it ever credited with voice of Ryan Kelly from WarChant. and it was <laughs> I, I don't even I don't even remember who it was but I said something about I, I didn't see I was I criticized a player, and it, it was very, very mild, whatever it was. And it was just like, a, you know, sometimes it doesn't look like he's all there. Like, it, it wasn't like some, oh, this despicable human being. And, but it's, it's that's the only time I ever got the point there, that uh, voice of Ryan Kelly. And it's immediately followed by Fisher pulling that player aside and going, the media's full of crap. Don't believe him. Oh, thanks, guys. <laughs> but the, but that, that was the only complaint. That was the only complaint. Other than that, it was really cool.
2: I mean, I had no complaints during the show because when I rewatched it just recently when we decided to do this, I said, hey, I know that voice, I know that guy now. And like, because when I watched it a little bit uh, as a senior in high school, I had no idea who half these people were like you and Al Posey and the other people around FSU. But now it's kind of cool watching it back and saying like, hey, I know some of these people. It's kind of a more personable experience.
0: See, Gary, if they did another one of these with the 2020 team, uh, you and I might even be included. Yeah, maybe. <laughs> Hopefully
2: we'll move no. Dow Twenty Brook takes if if they're going a few years. <laughs>
0: yeah, oh but, god, but could, could you even
1: imagine if they did a doc series
0: about the 2019 FSU football season? I don't know if I could watch it. I just, think I might not watch it.
2: I would watch I, it just I would I would have to watch it. Just give me the what best. else do
0: I need to know? <laughs> yeah. What else do I need to know? But but Ryan, from a media standpoint, you were you're covering the team. Every day, and you were there, having showtime there. From from what you could notice as a member of the media, what affected that have on the program from a day to day standpoint?
1: Well, uh, I'll tell you this: it somewhat affected our way of covering it, and because a lot more practices were closed. If I'm not mistaken, I think that was the first season where really. About two, three weeks into the season, you know, we traditionally would get an opening period of practice to view. Those got limited very, very heavily. And uh, Coach Fisher ended up only talking to us after practice. And we wouldn't have, I believe most days, any glimpse into practice at all. Showtime was there. They had their cameras. They were allowed to film the whole thing. But traditionally, the way that Gerald Fisher's practice would work is the media would come in on, I believe it was Mondays, Tuesdays, and Thursdays, the media was allowed in. Wednesday, they weren't allowed in. Friday, if they were at home for install, they weren't allowed in. But Mondays, Tuesdays, and Thursdays, we were allowed. We would probably watch about, oh, I don't know, six to eight periods of practice. And then we would get kicked out. We would come back for Coach Fisher about two hours later. And start week one, week two, that went away real fast. And a lot of us weren't sure, was this just a thing to give Showtime kind of its view and, you know, kind of give them some exclusivity? But uh, in 2017, it didn't come back. So uh, it was our first kind of understanding of, boy, they're really shutting us out on the outside. So, you know, as far as inside practice and all that, I wish I had a better answer for you. But I really don't because that was the first time that the media
0: really, really, really got pushed out at times and broke. You think Jimbo got a little taste of that and was like, yeah, 2017, let's, let's keep that going. Oh, absolutely.
1: Uh, <laughs> I, 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 and, and again – Uh, that's about me knocking the Showtime people because I guarantee you that that decision probably came from Coach Fisher at the time who was very very uh, I don't want to say paranoid but sometimes protective to a fault of his program and you know sometimes you saw those chickens come home to roost in the last two seasons of his tenure at FSU.
2: Do you think within some members of the media caused some divide or some animosity between the program and some reporters because they were kind of getting pulled back on their hours that they were allowed to get quotes and allowed to get videos and such?
1: Oh, I, 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 I would tend to agree with that statement. I mean, at the end of the day, you know, I get everybody wants to talk about and the media is just looking for a story. Yeah, because it's their job. And, you know, this is their livelihood, especially freelance people who, who need those quotes and they need those observations because they get paid by the article. They, they get paid by saying it. So I will say this, of course, Florida State did keep, the sound open this is not a knock on fsu sports info or anything like that because we still did talk to coach fisher we didn't talk to players maybe as much in that season but we still had a steady amount of players everybody got their quotes but in terms of you know practice reports in terms of those sights and sounds videos that you'll see on a lot of our websites uh you know photo galleries you didn't see many of those because
0: really those options weren't afforded
1: around that time
0: Go look at the back of the 2015 season. You know, you, you, you lost the Georgia, lost to Georgia Tech in a, in a true heartbreaker in every sense of the word. Uh, you lost to another great Clemson team. And then you got to the Peach Bowl, which maybe, you know, not everyone was there. It wasn't one of those games that you would expect the team to get, get up for. And, and they ended up losing that game. But all in all, still a successful season. You're two years removed from the national title game. And expectations were high, but, but what was the feeling around the program going into camp in 2016? Uh, well, you know,
1: 15 is kind of interesting because I think people understood you lost so much. Yeah. And, and, and I think to an extent, 15, I mean, you play Clemson close, you probably should have beat Clemson. I mean, let's 15, 16, and 17, all three of those years. And again, we'll get to Clemson this year in a moment. But Florida State has their chance in each one of those games to beat Clemson and just can't pull it off. It's kind of a reversal of what had happened in the years prior except for 2013. 14 and 12, I mean, there are times where Clemson has FSU dead to rights and they just can't pull the trigger and finish the job. So uh, all that being said, it is kind of this reversal of fortune around Clemson. It's a weird, fluky finish against George Tech which ties in a little bit to that North Carolina game. And I'll, I'll get to that in a second. But you finish strong, you beat Florida, you beat Miami. Granted, neither of them were exactly anything to write home about in 15. Uh, the Peach Bowl game's weird because Sean McGuire gets hurt. JJ Costino comes in, lots of turnovers uh, against a defense that is lit- Houston's defense at the time was literally set up to generate turnovers. It was mm-hmm. the perfect storm, the perfect nightmare and a really sour end to what had been an above-average season against, albeit, a weak schedule, a schedule that was not so great. Uh, But you bring in this momentum, either you're rolling with Sean McGuire or you've got, you know, the freshman DeAndre Francois that everyone is so excited about. You've got Dalvin Cook back. Uh, You've got some pieces of that defense returning. There's this guy named Derwin James that everybody really seems to like. Uh, there's so much optimism about it. And again, it's kind of taken away just like that. And I still have to commend the fact that you were able to leave the season with a fan base somewhat optimistic, even if a little disappointed in the year overall because
0: of how it started. And and you talk about Sean McGuire. uh, When he was injured in training camp, and that kind of made it seem like all signs are pointing towards DeAndre Francois, who is such an interesting character in the fabric of Florida state football for the last decade um, for so many reasons. Uh, but, but was there genuine confidence in Francois around the program that he was going to step in and be able to play well as, as a redshirt freshman? Uh,
1: you know, I, I think what was interesting about Francois, is yes, that he was a redshirt. The fact he'd had that year under his belt uh, the, the more optimistic portions of the fan base, of course, we're always going to take the social media and do what fans do on social media and say, well, the last time we started a redshirt freshman, it worked out pretty well. Yeah, well, the last time you started a redshirt freshman, it was a generational talent. But I'll tell you, from, from my perspective, I kind of felt like the floor was lower with DeAndre Francois, but the ceiling was higher. You knew that, I mean, he was such a gifted athlete, had such good athleticism, uh, was mobile. And, and I think that's something that, Jimbo Fisher's offense you saw a lot early on with EJ Manuel not so much in that 2012 season but early on either in that 09 season where he has to come in for Christian Ponder in some of 2011 when that offensive line wasn't so great and he had to move, use his legs and you also saw it with Christian Ponder Jimbo Fisher's offense had things built in for mobile quarterbacks that they could use to their advantage they had a speed option play they had certain quarterback draws and situations where if I have somebody who I feel can move I can put the ball in my quarterback's hands and they can pick up five to 10 yards with their feet. If things are set up correctly. You didn't really see that with Jameis Winston. Every now and then he had those interesting scrambles. And of course there's that one against Oklahoma state, but as we all know, it was a strange thing to watch. I mean, he he got the nickname the ostrich for a reason. He he was, (laughs) he was and Sean McGuire was not mobile either. So I, I, I feel like having somebody that, brought a little bit more dynamicness to your offense maybe had a little bit more explosiveness there was a nice upside to that but still here's a guy who's never played college football before is going into a situation with a lot of pressure with a team that's in the top 10 expected to maybe make some noise towards the college football playoff yeah you can see where that might go south
2: kind of going to the other side of that quarterback coin do you think if Maguire never went down and ended up winning the job in camp this guy this can be for both of you guys but do you know do you would you think that the season would have gone better or worse because i mean considering what happened the season ended up pretty decently
0: And I'll let you go first on that uh, you you guys know how i feel about Sean Maguire it's not uber positive it's not negative again not yeah. a knock on the guy um, but uh, Francois athleticism i think was was a huge Uh, you know, upside to his game in 2016. I don't know if McGuire wins you any of the games that Florida state lost in 2016. Now, I don't know if he loses any of the games that you won, but overall, I mean, it's really hard to say with, were you looking at Francois' body of work and the way he performed? And look around the league, the other quarterbacks in the league, four NFL starting quarterbacks in the ACC that year. You had Deshaun Watson, uh, Mitch Trubisky, Daniel Jones, and then last year's MVP, Lamar Jackson. I mean, the ACC was full of quarterback talent that year. Obviously, McGuire's not going to go uh, to Kentucky and beat Louisville. Uh, you know, maybe he, he makes a play, doesn't throw a pick against Clemson. I know Francois had, two, I think, two picks in the Clemson game. Uh, the North Carolina game, I think, is pretty fluky. Um, and, and there was a lot of weird stuff that happens in that game. Uh, so m- maybe Florida State wins one more game. Maybe they beat either Carolina or, or, or Clemson. But other than that, I, I, I don't know. I, I, I thought Francois, given the circumstances, played fine. Um, and, and honestly, that was probably the best you got to see out of DeAndre uh, during his time in Tallahassee.
2: I just can't think for some of the parts on Maguire. I don't know if he would have done better or worse in that first game against Ole Miss. That game was such a tough one, and you really saw some resiliency come out of uh, Francois, he learned quick in that game.
0: He threw for over 400 yards in his first game, Mm -hmm. And, and he was running around a lot back then. I don't know how many times he was sacked. Uh, but it was clear that the offensive line uh, was not the offensive line of just a couple seasons ago in Tallahassee, and I thought Francois was able was able to to really offset that, and he he came out firing, and you know he showed it in that game against Ole Miss.
1: Yeah, uh, the the only thing I would say is M- McGuire's knowledge of the offense is sometimes what shined through in the little bit of role he played. I mean, pe- people forget that uh, he comes into the game against Clemson because DeAndre Francois has to sit out of play, he calls an audible and Freddie Stevenson goes for a 38-yard run. Uh, he, he, He does that because he knows that offense, because he understands what Fisher was looking for and what was a very complicated and a very complex system at times. Now, does that help Florida State in one of those earlier games that they lose? I don't know. I mean, sure, DeAndre Francois doesn't have any touchdowns against North Carolina, but he also doesn't have any picks. He throws for 372 yards. It's an average of 11.6. I've got the box score in front of me, uh, just in case you thought I was somehow pulling that from memory, which I highly <laughs> doubt you did. But, uh, but you know, I, I think Florida State, as far as the offensive line goes, th- that's really, you know, surprise, surprise. Florida State's offensive woes sometimes came down to an offensive line because you had Dalvin Cook. You, you had – the ultimate weapon, the ultimate equalizer, a guy who could bail you out of just about any situation just because he's one of the most talented athletes to ever step foot in this place. And, you know, as as long as you trusted in him and you rode him, you were going to be golden.
0: Yeah. I I texted you guys before we came on. I was like, every time I watch, I was watching some of the 2016 highlights. Every time I see a Dalvin cook clip on YouTube, he gets better and better every single time. And, and I, I don't know if that's because I have a poor memory or he just doesn't get enough credit for how good he was at Florida State. I know there was a lot of Florida State fans that wanted to get more, a lot more acknowledgement in the, in the Heisman race. And that didn't happen. Um, but 2016, such a special player. But we talked a little bit about the Ole Miss game and, and how big of a win that was for the team. Uh, you know, a lot of points scored. 45-34, Florida State gets the victory. In Orlando, DeAndre Francois throws for over 400 yards. Dalvin Cook uh, rushes for 91 yards. Uh, Freddie Stevenson picked up a touchdown, as did Kermit Whitfield. But when when, when you, you see this team with a freshman quarterback struggle a little bit in this game, they were trailing. They were down like 28 – was it 28-3 at one point? And I was then- say, so struggling might be an understatement as far <laughs> as – this game. <laughs> because
1: this – I mean, people forget Labor Day night, Orlando, Florida – Citrus Bowl, Camping World Stadium, whatever it's called. Uh, 45-34 is the final score, but, yeah, I've, I've got the play-by-play in front of me. You're talking 28-13 at halftime, 28-6 at one point in this game, and from there, Florida State goes, let's see, Ole Miss scores one more touchdown in the entirety of the second half of this ball game, and they turn the ball over on three straight possessions Coming out in the second half, yeah. It, it was a game that I, I don't think I've ever seen a game change in just such drastic ways in football as the first half of that third quarter made that game. Ole Miss's band, I remember this. Ole Miss's band played so much in the first half, and there's about a 12-minute chunk of gameplay throughout this entire game that they didn't play a single song
0: <laughs> Be,
1: because oh, Ole Miss just became so
0: demoralized so quickly. The morning of that game, I was actually at Magic Kingdom in Orlando, and uh, the old Miss band was there doing a parade. Just a fun fact. No, it, it really doesn't add anything to the episode. Uh, but another thing from that game, Ricky Aguayo, six for six on his field goals. I mean, you know, fast forward to 2019 and 2020, you're telling me that Ricky Aguayo once went six for six in a, in a big game and, and kicked a 40-yarder, a 44-yarder. I mean, these weren't all chip shots. And and this was his freshman season, am I correct? Yeah, this this is his first ever game at Florida
1: State. And, and, you know, replacing his brother, who is widely considered to be the best kicker to go through a place that has had great kickers for two decades. Uh, I mean, and here he is. You know, you mentioned it. It's a 25-yard field goal. Then it's a 21-yard field goal. Then which one? I know there's a – yeah, there's a 40-yard field goal coming out of half – of the second quarter of this game. And then there's a 51-yard field goal also in the second quarter. Or, excuse me, got that wrong again. That's another 40-yard field goal in this game. And then a 44-yard field goal. And then a 30-yard. Not not to just barf up stats at you, but, but taking a look <laughs> at it, I mean, again and again and again, for a debut with as much pressure as was under him, yeah, you can't ask for more. Especially because that offense continued to stall out and you needed those points. And you got.
2: I mean, I thought when I started to see him make all his kicks, I thought we just got another Roberto clone, and it's going to be great. Hunky Dory, he might even pass his brother on the, in, the, in the ratings and everything to Ooh. pass that up. But, hey, we were dead wrong.
0: <laughs> and we're not going to go game by game, but we are going to cover you know most of the big games and talk about them. Week two, huge win, 52-8 to eight over Charleston Southern. Uh, then the team goes to Louisville, Kentucky. And faces the future NFL MVP Lamar Jackson, and uh, probably one of the most humiliating losses in Florida State history. They dropped this one sixty three to twenty. Uh, <laughs> Ryan. <laughs> I don't know, I just laugh thinking about that game now, but uh, what 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 happened there? I mean, what happened is
1: Lamar Jackson happened? Your youth and inexperience happened. Uh, you lose the turnover battle in a big, bad way. And this is a young team that maybe doesn't always have maturity all the way around, with a redshirt freshman quarterback who walks into a hornet's nest. I mean, people tend to forget something about this game, and it's that with about four—excuse me—with three minutes left, or excuse me, I want to make sure I get this right. So, Please do. yeah, halfway through the second quarter, it's twenty-one to ten. It's a close game. Florida State is scoring their points, but they've already missed a field goal. But Louisville's missed a field goal as well. Florida State has turned the ball over, and from there it goes south. A fumble. Dalvin Cook – or, excuse me, DeAndre Francois fumbles the ball. It's recovered. Touchdown, Louisville, 28-10. to After that, Florida State has to punt on a fourth and 24. Louisville – Gets the ball, just a little under two minutes to go. Scores it again, 35-10. to And in a matter of two drives, the game goes from close to over. It's done. It's 35-10. to The most dynamic player in college football is on the other sideline at home in what they're considering their biggest home game ever. The the game is essentially done in a matter of five minutes' time. And that's what's kind of crazy about this, is that no matter what happened from Florida State at the beginning of, you know, you thought, "Mm, this is maybe – but Florida State's got a score immediately. Well, they immediately give up a punt return touchdown, 42-10, to 10, game over. And it, it was so quick. And you got to give Bobby Petrino credit. He kept on the gas. He yeah. decided, listen, Florida State has run this conference for the last five years. They've been recruiting at a high level. Recruits are watching this game, and they're seeing my dynamic quarterback – run all over this team. So, yeah, you give them credit, 63 to 20 later, Florida State's got one of the most embarrassing losses in program
0: history. Do you think that was, uh, you know, just Lamar Jackson and all the other factors that went into that? Or was that an early sign of, of this team and the program as a whole struggling with adversity?
1: I, I, I think it was a perfect storm. I, I think it was a team that – maybe bought its own hype a little bit, maybe uh, wasn't necessarily mature enough to take that on in a a road environment early on in the season. This is your first true road game of the year, and it turns out to be arguably your toughest. Florida State's number two in the country at that time. People forget about this. And the number two team gets beaten by 43 points. That's absurd. It kind of reminds you of what Florida State did to Clemson in thirteen where, you know, Florida State's going to face a challenge. Lamar Jackson's really good. You know, there's a chance that Louisville might win this game. And as a matter of fact, a lot of people picked Louisville to win this game. But no one's going to be shocked if it goes either of way. Everybody's just expecting a good game. And from a certain moment, Florida State just couldn't get out of their own way, and it all tumbles from there.
2: Did you guys notice after this, so I re- when re-watching the Showtime the season with Shelp, uh, uh, Demarcus Walker at the end of that game during the press conference he gives a kind of a fake Tim Tebow I promise speech at the end of it and I was like what the heck man like he kind of just gave like a half-assed version of it
1: Every Tim Tebow I promise speech is a fake Tim Tebow I, promise speech. <laughs> I just want to be put on the record saying
0: Even the one by Tim Tebow is that what you're saying?
1: Yes I, I okay. promise well, we're, we're, the,
0: we're, the, we're the best team ever we only lost a Houston nut at home yeah, <laughs> you mentioned recruiting and how Florida State was viewed around the league. That 2016 class was seen as one of the best in the country, but you look through it, not all of those players worked out for Florida State. Yeah, no. Levante Taylor, who had an up and down career, but ultimately, I don't want to call him a bust. I thought I thought he was successful, but he was. But he was a, a, a crown of
1: jewel of that class. Yeah. He, he was the guy that was considered, you know, th- this guy's the next. Maybe not necessarily Jalen Ramsey, but he, he's going to continue Florida State's tradition of fantastic
0: cornerbacks. And yeah, that never really rolls works out. Yeah, yeah, Landon Dickerson, who ends up at Alabama now. Uh Baby on Johnson. Uh not really. I mean Yeah. Uh, I mean Baby and yeah, Babyon's a four star. Yeah, you had Brian Burns, first-round pick in the NFL. Like, uh, you can say that he had a very successful career in Tallahassee. Janarius Robinson, another really good pass rusher, I think, for the Noles. Uh, but then you got guys like Malik Henry, who I mean, just absolutely never turned into anything at Florida State for a lot of different reasons. But I think the program might have been able to see the writing on the wall there with a player like him. Keith Gavin, again, another up-and-down career, hasn't done a whole lot. Dontavius Jackson, who – Whew, man, was he a story every single week for the last two years? Um, Jawan Williams, Carlos Becker, Nasir Upshur, who's no longer with the program. There was a lot of – I don't want to call them all busts, but a lot of duds in this recruiting class. And Florida State, I mean, that was the highest rated recruiting class they've had since then. Um, but, but, Ryan, how, how tough do you think it was in that program to, to bring in a class like that and not have as many of the players as they were expecting to pan out on their roster?
1: Well, I, I think at the end of the day, because you we could literally do a whole episode on just this recruiting class, but you have seven offensive linemen signed in this class. Andrew Baselli, Mike yeah. Arnold, uh, Josh Bell, Juan Williams, Landon Dickerson, who you already brought up, on Johnson. I remember going on Wake Up every single day during the signing class, and it was, listen, this is the class for Rick Trickett. The offensive line wasn't great in 15, wasn't great in 14 until Cam Irving moved to center, and they kind of found their footing. But this was the class that was going to solve all those problems. This was the class that was going to make that go away. If not now, when, Florida State? And it turns out that's an answer that we're still sitting here on June 9th. 2020 we're still waiting for the answer to that question this was supposed to be the big fixer class more than anything on the offensive line because florida state was still recruiting good defensive talent florida state was still recruiting good skill talent but that offensive line had suffered this was the class that was going to fix it and it never did and uh
0: the offensive line yeah we do got to mention they signed or not signed got a commitment from a three-star center today so maybe uh Sign of a good thing to come for Florida State on the offensive line. Um, but, but moving on, on from recruiting in the Louisville game, uh, yeah, a very exciting South Florida game. Ended up with 90 points on the board, back-to-back touchdowns to start the game in the first quarter. Uh, one from Quentin Flowers, and, and then Dalvin Cook goes and runs, I think, a 75-yarder to the house, something like that. Um, an, an incredible game against a Willie Taggart-led USF team. Mm-hmm. Uh, a little bit of foreshadowing there. Um, but then we get to North Carolina in Tallahassee. 37-35 tar heels. And in in a game that a lot of people want to forget, but but in all honesty, I thought a lot of fluky things happened in this game, and that ultimately led to a game-winning field goal by the North Carolina kicker, Nick Weiler, for 54 yards. They advanced the ball like halfway up the field at nine seconds, uh, set him up for a career-long field goal. Uh, after what happened in Louisville, was this Obviously not the nail in the coffin for Florida state who ended up winning 10 games that season. But was this a bigger blow than that Louisville game, Ryan? Uh, I think so
1: because you know, the, the Louisville game, you're still alive in your division. You've got Clemson at home. It's say Louisville beats Clemson or say Clemson beat Louisville. You beat Clemson. You've got a three-way tie at first. Someone stubs their toe along the way. Your goals are still there. Again, this is a team that went into Louisville as the number two team in the country, a team a lot of people pick to be a factor in this college football playoff. You lose the second game in week five and that's gone like that. And you're sitting at three and two. Uh, you don't always look terribly impressive in these games. And I think when you take a look at that game against North Carolina, uh, it's a good Carolina squad. Uh, Mitch Trubisky is on that team. Uh, that's a team that I believe the year before is when they – play Clemson to the wire in the ACC title game, I do believe, if, I'm, if, if my memory serves me correctly. Uh, Larry Fedora has the program going great at that time, which is a weird thing to say in 2020, but it's true. Uh, the Carolina program is in a really good place. They're 4-1 after this game. But Florida State had this nasty habit from 2014 on of really playing to the level of their opponent, of just escaping. And the first time you really ever saw them get bit by that was that Georgia Tech game a year, a year ago. And sure, the game itself, it's fluky, but Florida State should have never been in that position to begin with. We're talking about a team that won an ACC game, and you were it. A team that, quite frankly, if you hadn't lost that game, uh, you're going into Clemson with this maybe with that maybe being a de facto college football playoff semifinal. Florida state wasn't one of the four best teams in 2015 in the country. I, I don't think many people would dispute that, but the fact that you had that opportunity save for that game is pretty crazy, but Florida state played with fire and played with fire and played with fire at opponents on the road at home. And this is the first time it bites them at home. This is Florida state's first loss at home since they lose to Florida in the 2012 season. So this is a big sinking deal. Uh, Three missed field goals to start the game. That's what's partially unacceptable, Uh, especially because, honestly, I don't blame Ricky Aguayo for that first one in particular. It's fourth and two. You're moving the ball pretty well. You're at North Carolina's 28. Go for it. You've got Dalvin Cook. Go for it. Set the tone early because you missed that field goal. You don't play the numbers. You play conservatively. Carolina takes the ball right downfield and scores. Florida State then misses two others and you mentioned it that there's a lot of flukiness to the end of this game but at the end of the day you can't be in a position to get punked like that at home this is just finally Florida State getting burned after two seasons really of playing with fire with competition that they probably should have beat and that's no knock on Carolina like I said that was a good tar heel team but Florida State talent wise everywhere except quarterback because I, I get he's not great. Chicago Bear, but Mitch Trubisky had a phenomenal season that year at UNC. There's a reason he went number two overall.
0: And a phenomenal game in Tallahassee.
1: Yes, he was fantastic in this game.
2: That that was honestly probably the game that maybe earned him that draft spot there. I mean, 31 for 38, 81.6 completion percentage, 405 yards, and no picks with three touchdowns. I mean, that's what won them the game, honestly, is that he was able to remain consistent and keep the ball out of Florida State's hands.
0: And Ryan, you talk about Florida State barely escaping a lot of these these close games against lesser competition in previous years. You know, the Florida State fans probably thought that's what they did again. You know, they they score with 23 seconds left to take the yeah. lead. Game's over, right? It's done. And it's like oh, they don't did worry. it. They pulled it off. Oof. You know, we'll move on. You know, we'll do this again next week against Miami. Oh no, you know, it, with with 23 seconds left, North Carolina, you know got all the way up the field not all the way up the field all you know further up further that far enough and up the field for wilder to kick that 54 yarder and uh I, I don't know i think that you know if you're looking back at it and look at some of these other results that florida state barely you know snuck out florida state kind of probably got what they had coming to them you know when you when you play teams like this eventually they're going to get you
1: and you know you, you take a look at this in general, this is one of those games that people really start beating the drum against Charles Kelly, the defensive coordinator at the time. Uh, the stat that always stood out to me with this game uh, anybody care to guess North Carolina's third down efficiency in this game? I'll give you a hint. They had a third down 13 times in this ballgame. How many times did they convert? 12. Oh, I'm going
2: to guess 10.
1: I was going to say, not quite that high, Brett, but it is nine. Nine of 13 <laughs> on third down, and you supposedly have this great defense with. Derwin James anchoring out that secondary. This is the first time that people really got upset with that. And also a lot of penalties in this game. Florida State has 120 penalty yards in this game off 13 violations. Uh, Yards per play, not where you want them to be. Yeah, this was just one of those games where it's just like you, you really start to see the systematic cracks of what's wrong with Florida State's program at the time. And the symptom is still, because you have Dalvin Cook, because you have these great skill players, it's still a close, objectively, a very good football game, but Florida State's systematic flaws shine through, and that's really why you lose
0: 37-35. In, in, in the, the very next week, I think you get another, I don't know if you call it a classic, but a, but a very entertaining game against the Miami Hurricanes and a game where Florida State won – but probably on the back of Dalvin Cook, who rushed for 150 yards in this game and and ultimately um, had the, you know, I think he scored a a receiving touchdown in this game um, and had 59 receiving yards as well. That was a 59-yard touchdown. Um, This game, and it's a game that I think a lot of Florida State fans want to hang their hat on when looking back at the 2016 season. But they didn't go down to, uh, to Miami and, and, and destroy the Hurricanes. You know, they very much had, had to sneak out again, another victory against a Miami team that, I don't know. I mean, they, I think they were ranked pretty highly at the time, but ultimately didn't turn out to be what we thought they were. Miami at the time is 10th in the nation. You're right there, Brett. Uh, yeah, this was a game
1: where, quite honestly, Florida State didn't look. Great. You're right. Uh, Dalvin Cook did what Dalvin Cook always seemed to do against Miami at the end, and that's bail Florida State out, just like he did two years prior in 2014 when Florida State was down big time in this football game. But you make the plays. Of course, the block at the rock is what's always going to be known for with this game, uh, <laughs> having the extra point missed, But this was a game where I kind of felt like Florida State grew up. They They kind of picked themselves up off the ground. They dusted themselves off. Uh, the block is one thing, but people also forget there's about two minutes left in this ball game. There's still time that's got to be run out. Uh, Miami still got the crowd into it for the most part. Florida State has to get first downs, and that was not always a given with this Florida State offense early on throughout that season. But the big play for this is it's second and nine, FSU 14, DeAndre Francois ends up scrambling for a first down from there. Dalvin cook gets another first down. They take those knees. They win that ball game. And yeah, it's, it's a real grow up moment for Florida state when there was still time left on the clock after an insane play, you kind of saw that script the week before Uh, Florida state scores with 23 seconds left. Surely there's not enough time. And there was so, Imagine that, but you're on the road against a rival, and you've got two minutes left. The, this was a fan base that was kind of biting its nails. Can Florida State pull this off? And it kind of proved back to business as usual. Florida State was the more talented team that day, and they still kind of played with fire, but they found a way.
0: And Florida State would take another trip back down to Miami in the postseason, but there are a couple more regular season games I want to talk about, and the one was two weeks later uh, at, against Clemson. Uh, The number three team in the nation at the time, the eventual national champions. And again, another very competitive, very entertaining football game from a neutral standpoint. Florida State drops this one 37-34. In in, in looking at that Clemson team, how great they were, obviously Deshaun Watson uh, at quarterback that year for the Tigers. They also had Hunter Renfro, uh, just a Clemson folk hero, and some other really good players on that team. Uh, including Wayne Gallman, I think, was one of their running backs at the time. And then Ray-Ray McLeod, also in the NFL right now, Deion Kane, um, They had a lot of great players on this team, and obviously Clemson's had some great defenses as well. Um, but the fact that Florida State was able to hang in there with this Clemson team, which I know isn't something that Florida State fans want to hear. They don't want to just be hanging in with Clemson, at least at this point in time. Now I think a lot of them would accept that. Uh, but in 2016, Florida State fans don't want to just be hanging in there with the Tigers They want to be beating them. They want to be competing for the ACC title every year. They want to be competing for a spot in the college football playoff. And even though this was a competitive game, it was Florida State's third loss of the season. It was another loss at home. It was a loss against an interdivision rival. Uh, At at this point, with with Jimbo Fisher and the way he was perceived by the fans, did things start to take a turn after this game?
1: I don't necessarily think with this game except for – the end of the game, when Florida State turns the ball over on downs, because the amount of penalties in Florida State's final drive game, Florida State has a chance. It's 37-34. We'll get to that block ball in a minute. (laughs) But uh, regardless of what happens with that, Florida State got the ball two minutes and six seconds to go win this ball game. And here is a list of penalties in this game. All you need is a field goal to go to overtime. You've got the ball at the Clemson 34. False start, Brock Rubel. Then you have the ball at the Clemson 39. False start, Landon Dickerson. You end up at the Clemson 44, out of field goal range, incomplete pass, incomplete pass, sack, sack, turnover on downs. That's how this game ended. And that what I think is what made people upset. People were willing to give FSU a pass because I really do feel like FSU fans felt like they were screwed out of this football game. And I I get that FSU is a fan base and, you know, growing up as a part of the FSU fan base that loves to bag on officiating and loves to bag on officials. Especially in this conference. Especially in this conference. This is one of those times where I do kind of feel like that was valid. There are a lot of times where it's just, a, well, why don't you call that for everybody else? Well, they do. But this is one of those (laughs) times where it just kind of felt like, boy, they really want that team to be undefeated. They really want that team in the playoff. That's that's the only time where I really feel like if you wanted to put on the tinfoil hat, I'm not going to blame you for it.
0: And you look at Dalvin Cook, you know, with that that chop block call, he finished the day with 169 yards and four rushing touchdowns, but that number is probably going to be over 200 yards if that play is not called back. Was this Dalvin Cook's best career game in the Garnet and Gold?
1: Oh, God, he had a lot of great ones. But, yeah, (laughs) those those numbers. I I think if Florida State wins this game, I think it's an undoubted yes. I mean, four touchdowns probably should have had five, Uh, 8.9 yards a touch, a touch. That's absurd. And, again, you mentioned it. This Clemson defense, this is not the defenses from the early 2010s that everybody loved to laugh at, that, hey, West Virginia just hung 70 on them. This is not that defense. 15 and 16 are when you finally kind of saw Clemson evolve into a team that could win games just on the defensive side of the football alone. This defense is incredible. And when you go back and look at some of the film and some of Dalvin Cook's long touchdowns in this game, when he gets one step on you, he's gone. Against incredible athletes, against great, great, great players, and especially a great back end, And there's just nothing you can do about it. And that's what made him so stinking special. And that's why I think FSU fans get a little upset about when he's overlooked, but you also have to look at it. He was also sometimes the only bright spot on this team later on in his career.
0: Yeah. You had uh, Ben Bowler on that Clemson defense, Claylin Farrell, number four overall pick in the NFL draft. Both I think were ACC defensive players of the year at one point in their career. Uh, And yeah, Dalvin Cook ran all over them. Uh, it, 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 it was it was a highly entertaining game. And I know like I said, Ryan, we're gonna we're gonna age you a little bit here, but I was at my high school senior year homecoming oh. and had to uh stream some of this game and i am oh. not ashamed to say this. Had to stream some of this game in the corner of the dance. And uh yeah, it didn't it didn't end very well for Florida State, but it was another I just prime felt game in the lights. Just, just felt my joints creak. Uh <laughs> Uh all right. Well, l- moving on, you know, Florida State uh, after the Clemson game went on, picked up, took care of business, beat North Carolina State 24-20, beat Boston College 45-7, to a lot different than the result in the next year's Boston College game. Uh beat Syracuse 45-14. Florida State really starting to hit their stride. Going into Florida, had what happened in the in the Clemson game and in the North Carolina game not been forgotten kind of moved on from thinking, okay, this team's turning a corner. And although there's no shot to get in the college football playoff this year, this is a reason to raise expectations going into 2017.
1: Yeah. Because the arrows seem to be pointing up for both squads. As far as Florida and Florida state goes, it's number 15 versus 14. It's Saturday night football on ESPN. Uh, Florida has just won the East for the second straight year, Florida state. Obviously, does not win the ACC Atlantic, but was within an inch of their life of beating the eventual national champion. The arrows pointing up for both of these squads, Florida state had played very, very well, but it just comes to, and you got to give coach Fisher a lot of credit here, even though for the most part throughout the 2010s, Florida was not a great program. They always seem to find ways to beat their rivals. They only lost to Florida and Miami both once throughout an entire run from 2010 to 2017 at FSU under Jim O. Fisher. And, you know, as much as people don't want to hear that, and for all his faults and honestly some of the flaws that are still in this program that you could lay at his feet, if there was one thing that Fisher's program did well, it was beat those rivals. And that was because they realized that setting the tone in the state of Florida was important. This is the backbone of your recruiting. This is the backlot, the spine from which you build your program. And Florida State would go out and routinely do this. Because if Florida wins this football game, you're riding this season completely different. It's an eight and four regular season. You're probably playing in, gosh, the Citrus Bowl, or I don't think the ACC had the Gator Bowl affiliation at the time, or the Belk Bowl. or You're probably playing in some sort of bowl game like that that's not against some high-profile opponent like Michigan. And Florida now ha- now has this on. you. And Jim McElwain, who was not a great recruiter, has something on you and he can go in that classroom and he can go in that living room and say, that's great, but I beat Florida State in Tallahassee. I'm the first guy to do it since Will Champ, believe it or not. It's just still a weird footnote in history, <laughs> but I'm the first guy to go in take care of business. And the narrative kind of shifts on this season. But the fact that Florida State, really kind of systematically took care of them. Dalvin Cook has another fantastic game. His long of this game is only 26 yards. He's only got a touchdown, but he rushes for 153. He's great whenever he's called upon. DeAndre Francois has a rushing touchdown in this game. Uh, He only throws for 138 yards, but Florida State gets the job done. The defense holds against Florida's offense, who sputtered for a good portion of this game I mean you're leading rushers Jordan Scarlett with 53 yards they only rushed for 58 yards on total uh, Florida State's defense kind of carries today in this game and Florida proves that they've still got a long ways to go with their offense like was the case for most of the 2010s
0: yeah for sure and and we are going to go into I'm going to ask you a little bit more deeper questions about the state of the program but do you want to just cover that last game real quick the orange bowl and we don't want to brush over it it's not a footnote but it is bowl game and in the age of the college football playoff, all bowl games that aren't in the college football playoff are seen as not glorified exhibitions for a game like the Orange Bowl, but they've definitely lost a little bit of their luster, especially when you've got players like Jabril Preppers not shooting up. I know he was dealing with injuries and some other things. Um, but but this game, uh, four state in Michigan, um, in the Orange Bowl, you got uh, Jim Harbaugh and Jimbo Fisher Uh, this had the makings of being a a really great television product and a really great football game.
1: It was. Uh, I mean, Michigan gets to play the role of spoiler in this game. I mean, Florida State's got them at one to point 20-9, and then Michigan continues to chip away. They take that lead with about a minute left to go in this football game. And, excuse me, yeah, they take it. I want to make sure I got that right. Uh, Yeah, they take the lead. Late in this football game, Keith Gavin has that crazy kickoff return that leads to an FSU touchdown. This was a really entertaining back-and-forth game. And I get what you're saying, Brett, as far as bowl games losing their luster. And I tend to agree with you for the most part. But Florida State and Michigan, it's such a compelling matchup. It's so marquee, especially because the arrow's still pointing up on Michigan. The arrow's still pointing up on Florida State. This is the first time that two of college football's brand names had faced off in ages. And the fact that you do it in a bowl game is revered as the Orange Bowl. This is back before, this is really around the first time that sitting out becomes kind of a factor because this is the year, if I'm not mistaken, this is the year Leonard Fournette sits out of that bowl game against Louisville and Christian McCaffrey sits out of their bowl game at Stanford against North Carolina. That was the Sun Bowl in El Paso, if I'm not mistaken. But yeah, this is. A game where Cook, another 145 yards, a place he's never lost at at what was then and is still now Hard Rock Stadium. Kind of hard to believe that stadium's held a name for four years. But this was kind of a nice end of an era for Dalvin. And really what ended up kind of being the de facto end of an era for Florida State football. We wouldn't know it at the time. But that's really, if you look at it, the nice big signature feel-good win this is the last one Florida state got.
2: And it almost ended on a real sour note, too, because Michigan had the lead. FSU got the touchdown to get the lead back. And then on the extra point, Florida State, it was blocked and returned for two points, making mm-hmm. it a one-point game with Michigan getting the ball back with a chance to win it. And at that point, I was in the stands there in the like third to last row at the top of the stadium. And me and my roommate were looking at each other like, oh my goodness, they're going to lose this. This is like a combination of the UNC and the Georgia Tech game all kind of put together. (laughs) It's going to be the the worst of both worlds. And they were somehow able to pull it off by making some great stops on Michigan's next drive. But when we were leaving that stadium, me and my roommate both knew we would be going to Florida State the next year for our freshman year. And we were thinking – everything's on the up and up. This is going to be great. Florida State's going to have a great program. And we're not going to be, they're not going to be bad because we'd grown up kind of watching bad football all our lives with FAU down here with the Miami Dolphins of the early 2000s and 2010s. And so we are like, finally, some good football.
1: <laughs> yeah. And there, there's no real other way to frame it. Uh, it was a feel-good football game against a team that, let's face it, this is kind of back before the narrative had soured on Jim Harbaugh and people really kind of made him, you know, he's so overrated. However, I want to say if everyone's saying you're overrated, you can't be overrated. Uh, so that, but all that being said, Michigan is thought of in a really high regard. A lot of people think that they're going to be the future of the big 10 at this point. And you win in a game that quite honestly, the narrative, was more about Michigan than it was about FSU. I know a lot of people, and I do kind of roll my eyes at the, uh, oh, have they mentioned Jabril Peppers yet? I mean, it's a <laughs> joke that some of the FSU fan base still makes. Gary made it right before we went on the air. But, uh, but it, it's a joke that has resonated with this fan base. And even though I, I, I think as a whole, it kind of serves more as, as a macro argument of this was going to be one of those games that if Michigan wins this game, this is their coronation. They have officially arrived. They are officially back. Florida State has stubbed their toe. They didn't look impressive against Louisville. They lost to a good, not great Carolina squad. This is the moment for Michigan, and it doesn't happen. And it's only fitting that this era of Florida State football ends with FSU escaping with a win by the skin of their teeth. It's only fitting.
2: And I still would have think it would have been weird if Michigan was crowned like they're back and Michigan were back into a good era of Michigan football because they still hadn't have beaten they still hadn't beaten Ohio State yet. And I yeah. don't think you can really claim a Michigan team to be back until they beat uh, an, an Ohio State team.
1: This is also, however, 16, not 17. I want to make sure I got that right. 16 is the year where Ohio State wins off that controversial call, correct?
0: I believe so. In the yeah. in, in the so uh, Michigan Ohio. It. yeah, I think that's right.
1: Yeah. yeah, so so Michigan had just played this war with a team that's in super high regard. Uh, at, at that point, you have to remember this is only Jim Harbaugh's second year at Michigan, and he's now finally got them back in the new year six, and arguably should have beaten Ohio State in his second year. So that narrative maybe isn't necessarily as set then as it is now.
0: And Jimbo Fisher, because obviously he plays such a large role in this season as the head coach of the program, Um, but you had the LSU rumors. You had just the general SEC rumors. Other than those, which I know is kind of the big piece of, of evidence here, could you see any other writing on the wall from the inside of the program that the Jimbo Fisher era or at least the Jimbo Fisher era of dominance in the ACC at Florida State was coming to an end?
1: Well, you know, the, the warning signs are definitely there. And, you know, we, we mentioned it early on. It's that loss against Louisville. It's the loss against Carolina where you've racked up the penalties, where you're kind of refusing to embrace modern football and rolling that dice on that fourth and two and instead of kicking that field goal with a freshman kicker. It's some of the – inexplicable collapses from that defense that really ramped up the pressure on Charles Kelly. I think Charles Kelly sometimes took a little too much heat, but I understand where people's frustrations were coming from. I mean, third and Kelly was a thing on Twitter for a reason. It's because Florida state routinely found themselves behind the ball on third down. They routinely found themselves in positions where they're lining up on the other side of the first down marker press blitz. You've got great athletes. Go after them. I understand Florida State fans' complaints at that time. It was that. It was the fact that the offensive line didn't seem to be getting much better. And the complaints and the murmurings that had kind of honestly built up starting in 2014 were still there in 16. But the results were still there. The wins were still there. You still beat Miami. You still beat Florida. You still go to a New Year's Six Bowl. And, by the way, you did it and you won. Florida State played – at the time, one, two, three, four, five, six. They played six teams in the top 15 in this season, and they went four and two. Uh, you have to feel pretty good about that when you're playing with a redshirt freshman quarterback that isn't named James Winston. And you saw some good things out of him down the stretch. I, I think this is the first time looking back that you can, with the benefit of hindsight, circle it and say, yeah, this is the first real big time that there was trouble in paradise. But at the time, because of how sweet the season ends, the fact that down the stretch, you end seven and one in your last eight football games, you arguably should have won that game that you lost. That's where the difference is. Hindsight versus then, because then that seemed like a pretty nice salvage job.
0: Now we know that it was just kind of, Systematic at the point in the program, with four or five stars coming in in the next year's class, including Cam Acres, including Marvin Wilson, Josh Kando still on the roster now, and Wilson as as well, and Kalen uh, Laburn. But with Francois, if if Ryan, if I had told you how the rest of his not only Florida State career but college football career would go, at the end, right after that Orange Bowl game. Would you have been able to believe me? I know a lot of that was out of his control, that the injury in 2017, you could say, derailed his career, but you couldn't predict what happened to him after that, especially including his, his relationships within the program, with the coaching staff, with the media. Talk to me a little bit about Francois and, and how his career kind of was all downhill from there.
1: You know, some of those off-the-field red flags started kind of, there were whispers and rumors and murmurs in 16, but never anything tangible. Uh, but they eventually come home to roost. Uh, yeah, uh, I'm a little floored that it kind of ended that way because he's a big reason why Florida State is so highly touted in 2017 after losing one of their best offensive players ever. like like You, you don't just become a preseason darling after losing a generational player, and that's what Florida State did in losing Dalvin Cook so, yeah, uh, it's still a little jawing and it's still kind of crazy to think it's just a piece, another piece of the puzzle that Florida State has not had any sort of solidity. Uh, solidity is not a word. But <laughs> they, they haven't had any sort of solid footing, any sort of concrete security. Security, that's what I'm looking for. Think, Ryan. Thanks. Uh, in this quarterback situation since Jameis Winston declared for the NFL draft, I mean, you could argue that the most consistent part of quarterback play that Florida State's gotten in that time is either that run late in the season with DeAndre Francois in 16 or in 2015 when Sean McGuire starts the second half of the season. Florida State's offensive line is a piece of the puzzle, but so is Florida State's quarterback play.
2: Well, for the offensive line portion, the next season going into that 2017 season, I think they only had one offensive lineman come in from that 2017 class. I think it was just Brady Scott. So that just really kills you when you're trying to rebuild or trying to build up a core of offensive linemen when you're only bringing one in.
1: Well, the thing is, I think, I think the class before had a lot to do with that. The fact that this is, you know, we're bringing in these six, seven guys, they're going to be the nucleus on this rock. We will build the church. And it just never turned out that way. Mm -hmm. Brady Scott was going to be another piece of the puzzle. But all that being said, when you whiff on a class as bad as they did and that's not to say that everybody on that team has turned into a bust of course Andrew Paselli leaves the team and rejoins the team and has been a solid depth guy Landon Dickerson is still a fantastic talent he just so happens to not play at FSU anymore uh, th- there were some nice pieces out of it but it was certainly not the game-changing class that Florida
2: State wanted well also one thing about the O-line from the Showtime show that I noticed is that Sean McGuire and a few other former Florida State players all have this house together and Eberle, Alec Eberly also lived in that house and Everly was kind of going to be the man of that house in the next year. And McGuire kind of jokes with him and says, you know, we're probably going to come back to this house in a few years and it's going to be just trashed. And Everly kind of laughs and says, yeah, probably. And I just thought for a second, I was like, that is so telling of what the years are to come for Florida State. I mean, it's like, he's telling the future before it even happens.
1: It's just hilarious foreshadowing that they had no idea what's coming together. But
2: yeah, that
1: uh, that kind of sums it up nicely. I've gotten under to add there.
0: Yeah. Well, uh, Ryan, uh, this 2016 season again. I think we we've done a good job here. You know, like we said, it's, it was a successful year. You win ten games. You win the Orange Bowl. On paper, you you show someone the Florida State 2016 season, the type of production they got out of guys like DeAndre Francois and, and Dalvin Cook. You know, this was a success, but a lot of the stuff that happened in the ins and outs of the program really laid the the groundwork for what was to come in 2017, where Jimbo Fisher doesn't even finish the season, before he goes off to Aggieland, Uh, and then Willie Taggart comes in um, for less than two years, and now here we are today with a whole new coaching staff and Mike Norvell, who is going through a hell of a lot before they even take the field for an official game. They've had three official, maybe three or four official practices. But given what we know about how 2016 went down and how the program is either different or maybe even the same now with the new staff, I'm talking with the athletic director, with the university president, with the funding. And I know with COVID-19, that might have an incredible impact on Florida State football from a financial standpoint. Has Florida State recovered from 2016 and 17, the end of the the Fisher era?
1: As far as football, no.
0: Uh, I I think really
1: the the repercussions kind of stand for themselves. 16 is the perfect foreshadowing into the 17 season. It just so happens that Florida State wins most of their close games in that one compared to Florida State losing just about every close game in 17. 17 is the first time that them playing with fire for so long against teams that probably weren't as talented with them really came back a bit like them in the rear but think about it it's a quarterback injury early on in the season it's a defense that sometimes struggles in key moments it's an offensive line that's still not all the way there all those pieces really kind of foreshadow and carry themselves into 2017 but because the wins are there people are willing to overlook them because the quarterback plays well and it's Redshirt freshman year, people are willing to overlook them. Because you beat your rivals, people are willing to overlook them. It was really kind of the perfect storm in 17, where outside of that Florida game, uh, you lose to Miami for the first time ever in Jimbo Fisher's tenure. People forget the last time that Florida State lost to Miami, it was because Jarman Fortson dropped a pass in the end zone in Bobby Bowden's final season. It had been that long. I don't even want to ask how old were you guys when that came out.
2: I wasn't, was even, I wasn't in middle school yet. I went, was whole, in the fifth grade. I went through a whole middle school and high school without seeing Florida State lose a game. But I got a stat to back up that argument about how the, kind of it was that perfect storm and things kind of bounced the right way at certain times. In the 2016 season, Florida State was down at the half six times. They ended up going three and three in those six games. In 2017, they were down or tied at the half in five games. They went 0-5 in those five games.
1: That so, bomb, Mr. Pucknick.
2: That shows you the mentality changed, and they kind of just gave up.
1: And, and uh, compare that to how many times in 14 and 15 were they tied or trailing at the half and they won. And it was virtually all of them that they end up pulling it out, but they don't do it here. And they especially don't do it in 17. And it's, it's just kind of a downward trend that because the win-loss column wasn't all that different, people were willing to overlook until that final season.
0: And then I got to ask you before we wrap up here, Ryan, we, we talked about Mike Norvell just a second ago, and we haven't had a whole lot of opportunities to see Coach Norvell in action with his team, only a few practices, um, and, and now they're getting back to doing some workouts. But w- initial thoughts on, on Coach Norvell, the staff he's brought in, and the job he's been able to do on campus and on the recruiting trail? Well, he he certainly seems to
1: know what he wants out of a program, and he seems to know what he wants at all times. And I think that's what's really kind of refreshing, is it's a guy who not only that, but also kind of seems to be making a very forward-thinking approach. And overall, when you take a look back at when Jimbo Fisher took over in 2010, it was such a breath of fresh air, because where, you know... People always remember the end of the Jimbo Fisher era as here's this guy who's set in his ways. He doesn't want to change anything. He's too loyal to his staff. He's too loyal to people who've been around the program. And that's the opposite of the dude that took over in 2010 in many ways. Here's the guy who said, I want to improve my facilities. Here's the guy who said, I want to do this GPS tracking at practice. I want to use technology to my advantage. I want to start recruiting better. I want a more forward-thinking nutrition plan. And and to see some of the ways that Mike Norvell is adapting that into a 2020 world compared to a 2010 world. You know, uh, I want to really take another look at how we're going to do this football only facility, uh, the way that they deal with the media, the way that their players deal with it. I mean, I don't want to touch on it for long, but what happened last Thursday when Marvin Wilson tweets out about a player or tweets out about what well, coach didn't do this, the, the fact that that's resolved by lunchtime the next day, and it has a good narrative going forward, I think shows that you now have a guy who completely understands what it means to be a coach in this social media world where any player can tweet something out and check you on something. Uh, I'm not sure if that necessarily happens a year before that or a few years before that with Fisher. Uh, It's not
0: happening right now at Clemson either. And and that's
1: a whole other podcast. Uh, I mean, and, and, and the thing is, uh, obviously racial inequality versus hydration at the Boise state game are somewhat apples to oranges, but take a look at how coach Taggart kind of dealt with that comment that he made on his own call in show about, we weren't hydrated. Well, the thing is because what's going on right now in our country is the news story It's not going away. It's going to be something that we're going to deal with for a very long time. But sports stories in general that have nothing to do with protest or civil unrest or anything like that, sports stories in terms of injuries or what happened at practice this day or what uniforms we're wearing, because it's so mile a minute, there is spoiled milk with a a longer expiration date than some sports news. And Willie Taggart brings that up two days after he makes that comment when he goes and he brings that bottle of water out to practice and he says, he reads back his transcript. That story was dead and gone. I don't think that's something Coach Norvell would have done. So I'm very impressed with how Coach Norvell carries himself around us. Obviously, we haven't seen a lot of practice yet. Uh, We don't know what this product's going to look like on the field. As a matter of fact, it's probably going to suffer because they didn't have a full spring. But overall, he said all the right things and done all the right things. But it's also worth saying, and this is no knock on Coach because, again, he hasn't played a game yet to really defend his record. The last guy did a lot of this too. When Willie Taggart came in, he won the PR battle. He won the PR war. He had this place absolutely ready to run through a brick wall. And within five minutes against Virginia Tech on a Monday night, it was all gone. Now, where I think Norvell has been different is he's definitely – not throwing expectations through the roof. He's just said they're going to work hard. They're going to practice hard. And we'll see how that happens. He's made it definitely seem like a process to where Willie Taggart came in and kind of said, well, I'm here, problem solved. So that I think kind of is the big difference. But in terms of overall with the program operations, I don't think we've seen enough for really any of us to make an honest assessment of that right now. But for the most part, you have to like what you see. And especially with the fact that Florida state had a recruit over the weekend after having a PR nightmare 48 hours before. So I, I tend to think they're doing something right, right now.
0: Right. Ryan, I am in, in full agreement with you there. Uh, f- thank you again for, for coming on today. Uh, it was, uh, I don't know if I feel any better about Florida state football after having this talk. <laughs> Um, but, it, but it was definitely fun to kind of rehash everything that went on not that long ago, even though, like we said, it feels like it was over a decade ago. Heck, basketball
1: um, season feels like it was a decade ago at this
0: point. So Yeah, no, you're right. You are right about that. But uh, that is going to do it for this week's episode of Tomahawk Talk. Once again, thank you to, so much to Ryan Kelly of WCTV, formerly of WVFS and Tomahawk Talk, for hopping on today as he is the elder statesman here. Uh, that that was on campus in 2016 and in Tallahassee in 2016. As always, good uh, thank you to my co-host Gary for hopping on again, and uh, we'll see you guys next week.